Just after 5 a.m. on October 2, 2012, in Petoskey, Michigan, 911 dispatchers received a call from a man by the name of Carl Kopenkowski. 911. My brother went to work this morning at about 5.30 or so on. I am at his truck right now. Standing on a remote countryside road, beside his brother Lyle's red pickup truck, Carl had made the call out of concern for his missing brother. Only a short time before, as Carl and his wife Tony had laid in bed, Lyle's wife Carol had called to tell them her husband had never made it to work that day. She had received a call from Lyle's employer, who had found it strange and thought to check in. Being the hard-working, reliable man that Lyle was, this was highly unusual. As they heard the concerning news, Tony recalled seeing Lyle's truck earlier that day, parked along the side of the road. Carl immediately drove out to the deserted side road where his wife had indicated she had last seen Lyle's truck. And there it was, exactly where Tony had remembered seeing it last. But there was no sign of Lyle. It didn't take long for deputies to arrive on the scene and begin a search for Carl's missing brother. As they began to comb the sides of the road and into the ditches, they soon stumbled across the body of Lyle Kopenkowski. When I picked up Lyle's shirt and saw that he had bullet wounds through his back, and it was very clear at that point that we had a homicide. The 58-year-old had been shot several times in the back and once in the head. The homicide investigation was immediately on to determine who could have committed such a heinous crime in this small county. Join me now as we take a look into the mysterious death of Lyle Kopenkowski, a hard-working and loving man, killed in the small coastal town of Petoskey, Michigan, and the smoking gun that gave it all away. The name Petoskey is said to mean where the light shines through the clouds in the language of the Adawa indigenous people who once inhabited the area. Part of northern Michigan, Petoskey is on the southeast shore of Little Traverse Bay of Lake Michigan. It is known for its beautiful waterfront resort communities. With a relatively small population of just under 6,000 people, its spectacular scenery and million-dollar sunsets makes this picturesque little town an unlikely backdrop for cold-blooded murder. Brothers Lyle and Carl grew up in rural Petoskey and enjoyed their country upbringing. Carol Dunkel was literally the girl next door, and as neighbors, she and Lyle started hanging out and soon became best friends. As they started high school, dating seemed to be the natural next step. After graduating, Lyle and Carol got married and they appeared to be happy together. Lyle's family owned some farmland and after getting married, the newlyweds were given a plot of land. As they began building their life together, 
they dreamed big dreams of what their future would bring. Both hard workers, Carol sometimes had multiple jobs, but as much as the couple worked hard, both Lyle and Carol liked to have fun, hanging out with friends and family. Never having children of their own, the couple had extra money to spend on each other and things they enjoyed. Carol was especially known to appreciate the good things in life. At one point, Carol expressed her desire for a vacation home or timeshare, and so they got one. There was really no limit to the amount of fun and money they were willing to spend enjoying their life together. Lyle, in particular, loved to spoil his wife, so when Carol continued to express an interest in owning and running her own restaurant, Lyle made it his mission to see that she got it. In 1984, Lyle made Carol's wish come true, and she became a proud restaurant owner. She was successful, so when another restaurant became available, Carol jumped at the chance and opened the Country Inn Restaurant. This second restaurant started out successfully as well, but northern Michigan is a tourist area, and the winter months can be very long, making it difficult to sustain a business. It wasn't long before the restaurant started to fail. No money was coming in, and things weren't looking good. In June of 1986, Karl Kopenkowski was a firefighter for the Petoskey Fire Department when he was dispatched to a fire at an address that sounded familiar to him. Carol's restaurant was on fire. As his fire truck sped towards the fire, Carl noticed another truck drive past and he was certain it was Carol's. He couldn't understand why Carol would be driving away from a fire at her own restaurant. Carl chalked it up to either him being mistaken or maybe she was going to get Lyle. Either way, the restaurant burned to the ground and Carol made the decision not to rebuild it. The exact cause of the fire was not able to be determined. Lyle and Carol continued going on vacations. They were happy and life was good. Lyle loved his wife more than ever, but that was about to change. As Lyle and Carol were attending their high school reunion, they ran into one of their old friends, John Ernst. John, Lyle, and Carol had been good friends in high school, and they reconnected, discovering that John was now a successful pharmaceutical salesman living in Tennessee. After the reunion, John began spending more and more time in Michigan with Lyle and Carol. Friends and family began to notice it often seemed that Lyle would be sitting by himself, drinking, while Carol and John sat together at the table, playing cards and talking. In fact, Carol began making Lyle's drinks for him. She would make them so strong that shortly afterwards, Lyle would fall asleep right there in his chair. It wasn't long 
before John and Carol began their extramarital affair. The first night it started, Carol was out with a friend, and they went back to the friend's house to drink more. Carol contacted John, who came over with a bottle of liquor, and the three began to drink. Soon, John and Carol disappeared to the bedroom and didn't resurface again until the following day. The affair was now in full swing, and Carol and John didn't do much to hide it from Lyle, or anyone else for that matter. They started having lunches together, and John came over to the house on a regular basis. It got to the point where while at a party for a friend Carol was catering, Lyle drank so much that he confronted John, who had seemingly shown up to the party for Carol. Family was able to get Lyle away before it escalated into a fist fight. However, the damage had been done. Lyle didn't want John near his wife anymore. Lyle loved Carol, and he didn't believe in divorce. He wanted to work things out with Carol, and would have done anything in the world for her. The affair continued on for four years. Carl had known that his brother Lyle had been depressed leading up to his murder and had been drinking more. It was all too apparent he wasn't happy. After discovering Lyle's body on October 2nd, 2012, deputies headed straight to the Kopenkowski home to notify Lyle's wife Carol about the heartbreaking and horrific news. Detective J.L. Sumter from the Emmett County Sheriff's Office quickly noted that Carol's reaction was unusual for someone who had just discovered their spouse had been murdered. You never know how somebody will act or react. Everybody reacts differently. But right from the initial interview, the tears were there, but the emotion wasn't. It's kind of how I would explain it. And I felt something right from the onset that something was amiss with, with her. Investigators quickly began digging deep into the high school sweetheart's marriage of almost 40 years and soon discovered it wasn't exactly as perfect as it seemed. My initial interview with Lyle's brother revealed that it was a possibility that Carol Kopenkowski, Lyle's wife, was having an affair. wanted to make that known right away, which had caused recent depressional issues with Lyle. It was very clear that they wanted me to know that even prior to interviewing Carol. Friends recalled being shown a gun at the Kopenkowski home that was jokingly referred to as a throwaway gun that could be used for murder because it wasn't registered. It didn't take long for investigators to find a gun holster located in the residence, but it was empty. Another search of the home showed that Carol had several books on how to murder, forensics, and how to clean up a crime scene. 
in cases like this, the first person you have to look at is the spouse. And of course, that was where I was taking the investigation from the onset. What I did find out was odd is that she had a very detailed plan of the day. I mean, she told me she went here at this time, here at this time, here at this time. And if you were to ask me what I did yesterday at a certain time, I mean, I couldn't tell you. That was a little odd. Not only did she tell me the times of where she had been or what she had doing, but also who was there. And she didn't necessarily say, hey, they could verify you know, my presence there, but she made it known that those were people there and knew that, you know, as an investigator, we would be contacting them. She had nothing to worry about, and there's no reason to make it very well known where you were. Anyway, that to me was a little bit odd. At one point early on into the investigation, police were contacted by an insurance company inquiring whether or not Carol was a suspect in her husband's death since she had just tried to file a life insurance claim for $100,000. Other family members talked about the family farm and Carol's desire to sell it after Lyle and Carl's mother passed away. She was notably displeased by the decision to keep it in the family. As the investigation continued, Chief Assistant Prosecutor for Emmett County, Stuart Fenton, recalls being brought onto the case. I have 30 years experience in prosecution and I moved up here in March of 2013. The case had already been charged and was pending when my predecessor lost his job. So I inherited the case and when I first reviewed it, I thought, well, she probably did it. But it wasn't a very strong case at all. It was very circumstantial. There was no smoking gun. There was no murder weapon. There were no eyewitnesses. There was not a whole lot of evidence, frankly. There were some suspicious circumstances. She had lawyered up on the second day of the investigation, I believe, and stopped answering questions of the police. That was highly suspicious, but not admissible in court. Anytime anyone invokes their right to an attorney... They have that right, and it can't be used against them in court. So, you know, that was a a red flag for me and an indicator that she had done it. Police continued their investigation, and eventually, on January 3rd, 2013, Carol Kopinkowski, who is now almost 60, was charged with first-degree murder of her husband, Lyle. Carol's attorney, Mary Beth Kerr, fought and successfully obtained bail for her client. Miss Kerr was confident that the case against her client was weak and argued to the district court judge that no murder weapon had been found, there were no eyewitnesses, no DNA, no blood, no shell casings, and no one who could place her client at the scene of the crime. Due to these factors, the judge granted bail in the amount of $500,000, with 10% down. However, before Carol's pre-trial release, she was given some conditions. She was not to display any assaultive or threatening behavior towards any person. She had to wear a GPS unit so the court could keep track of her whereabouts at all times, and she was not allowed to leave Emmett County. She also had a curfew of between 9 p.m., and 6 a.m. Autopsy reports 
would eventually show that Lyle had a small amount of alcohol and a therapeutic level of Ambien in his system, which he used to help with his sleeping. It also showed that he was shot a total of five times There was something very unique that came from that autopsy concerning the bullet. The bullet was actually lead. That is an older style bullet. I actually contacted a bullet specialist that so happened to be living in Lansing, Michigan. And he travels around the world doing seminars just on bullets. So I had him come up here and he took a look at the bullet and could tell me right away that it was a 38 caliber bullet that was lead. And he was willing to, to write a report saying what kind of gun that normally shot these type of bullets. It was pretty unique that that came out of just a small bullet fragment. All shots were fired less than four feet away. Four of the shots entered through Lyle's neck, upper chest, and right shoulder. But it was the fifth and final shot to his head that killed him. The case against Carol was progressing very slowly. Investigators began questioning Carol's lover, John Ernst, to find out his involvement in the case. Chief Assistant Prosecutor for Emmett County, Stuart Fenton, explains. I reviewed the case several times, and one of the things that seemed to be missing from the case was a detailed interview with John Ernst. John Ernst was her lover, longtime friend, and we thought a motive for the murder was to get rid of Lyle her husband, because she had been cheating on him. She'd been seen cheating on him by friends and people in the community with this guy, John Ernst. So John Ernst, interesting character, lived in another state, I think Tennessee. He was from Petoskey, but had moved away. He was alibied for the time of the crime, so he we knew he wasn't involved directly. He was in Tennessee at the time. And so the investigator had never really done a thorough interview of him. So. One of the things I wanted to do was do that. The way we did it was an investigative subpoena interview. So even though the case was already pending, we have something called investigative subpoena power. It's kind of like a one-man grand jury. The prosecutor can subpoena witnesses who may have information about a crime in and interview them under oath. And if they lie, then it's perjury under oath. And if they refuse to answer questions, they can be held in contempt of court. But if someone has a legitimate Fifth Amendment right, they can refuse to answer questions. So we did that with John, and he came back to Michigan and came in for an interview under oath. And I had anticipated that he might take the Fifth, even though he was alibied in Tennessee on the day of the crime. So I had a grant of immunity prepared ahead of time, which I didn't let them know about. And he continued to take the Fifth, and I tried to argue with him. He brought a lawyer in. I argued that he didn't have a fifth. The lawyer said, well, you can't say whether he does or not, so we're not going to answer the question. So then I whipped out the, uh, the grant of immunity. I actually went upstairs and had the judge sign it at that point. Came back down, and that forced him to have to answer my question. So once someone's protected by a grant of use immunity in Michigan, 
they don't have the right of silence anymore. They don't have their Fifth Amendment rights anymore. The immunity takes the place of the Fifth Amendment right to silence. So he answered my questions finally because he had to, but he lied and denied everything. So he was very unhelpful uh, as a witness. That came back to bite him later. The case was beginning to look circumstantial at best. Prosecutors kept pushing forward, and a trial was set for early 2014. What happened next was like something straight out of a movie. The smoking gun they had been hoping for. I will go to my grave (laughs) remembering that day very vividly. It was near my uh, end of shift, 4 o'clock, and I think maybe about 3.30, quarter to 4, I received a phone call from an attorney, and he said to me, this is Jack Words, where I think I have some information you probably want to know. And I said, what is it concerning? And he said, the Kopitowski case. Then went on to explain that his client had detailed information regarding Carol wanting to hire him as a hitman. Approximately a year earlier than Lyle's death. That, at that point, that was it. We weren't able to conduct an interview with him until the next day. So that night, of course, was the longest night of my life. When we did conduct the investigation the next day, it was very clear that he had good information. He had details that he had saved on his phone that only uh, someone who was telling the truth would have had. He claimed that Carol gave him a map of Lyle's route to work, which was accurate. He had a picture of Lyle's truck with a license plate, which she had given him. So he was very believable. So that completely changed the complexion of the case. This now put them in the position of adding a charge for solicitation of murder. This new witness was volunteering the information detectives and prosecutors had long been searching for. As it turned out, Carol's own defense attorney, Mary Beth Kerr, had hired a private investigator. When the defense's private eye began digging into the case, the informant heard the chatter in the small town where news travels fast about the murder and he became concerned that he would be implicated. When you're in a small town, it doesn't take long for information to pass from one person to the next. In a small community, you're putting it out there that she wants her husband killed. This guy just happened to be a random friend of a friend. It wasn't advertising Craigslist or eBay that she needed a hitman. It was just a friend of a friend. It was just somebody off, basically off the street. She must have picked the, the right person because it took him a year, a year and a half to come forward to help us out. 
his uh, statement to me is that he just didn't want to get involved, and that just that just floored me because he could have put a he could have put this at day one with that wrinkle into the case on day one, and and you know and released relieved their family and some pain right off the get go, but he chose to wait so long. After obtaining an attorney, the informant told investigators that Carol indicated that she needed Lyle killed. Police now had what they needed to get a conviction. Chief Assistant Prosecutor Fenton immediately charged a count of solicitation for murder to go along with the first-degree murder charge. to the defense, you know, a few weeks before trial, and I said, look, we got this witness, and he's corroborated. He's got corroborating evidence, and basically, your client's going to be convicted. So, I mean, this was the smoking gun that we were missing all along. Of course, he had decided not to go through with it, so, you know, the argument is she did it herself. He was very convincing that she had tried to get him to kill Lyle. So the defense attorney had a serious conversation with Carol and agreed to plead to my offer, which was to plead guilty to second-degree murder as opposed to first-degree murder. And in Michigan, first-degree murder is mandatory life in prison. But second-degree murder is up to life in prison. But even if you get life, which would be unlikely because of our sentencing guidelines scheme, it's parolable life. So... My recommendation was going to be 18 years on the minimum sentence, so she could be paroled after 18 years. And being that she was in her 60s already, she'd be in her 80s when and if she ever paroled, if she lived that long. But part of the deal was she was going to have to tell us everything. She was going to have to sit with us and debrief and tell us the truth about what happened and about John Ernst's role in the case. Investigators approached Miss Kerr with a plea offer to allow Carol to plead guilty to one count of second-degree murder in exchange for her truthful testimony regarding what happened that cold, dark morning when Carol so ruthlessly stole the life of her husband. To say anger didn't surface would be a lie. I was both relieved but angry as well that, you know, that she would do such a thing and uh, cause the family such pain. To say that police officers leave their job at the job is not true. You, you can't possibly leave something like this had the job and not think about it. Not only did it take a toll on me, 
it certainly took a toll on my family as well. I mean, they saw the hours and hours it it took to to bring justice for the family. So you you know you're emotionally uh, connected to the case as well. I mean that you know I, I see the this family and you know there and you know not only did they lose you know Lyle was you know a good guy. You know it, it's just it's hard because you know they they once had a sister-in-law too. Yeah, I mean, it, it does take a toll. It's, it's, it's tough. But <laughs> you, you, got, you have to overcome it and uh, concentrate on the ultimate goal, obviously, is to make an arrest. It's a chilling videotape at the Sheriff's Department where I sat there and interviewed her with the investigator, and she detailed what she did she told Lyle, who's a factory worker and was going to work that morning, that she wanted him to drop her off a mile, mile and a half from the house so that she could get her exercise and walk back to the house. Of course, he agrees. And then at the drop place, as she's getting out of the car, and they're switching places because she had insisted on driving. So now they're switching places and he's getting into the driver's seat and that's when she starts shooting up. And he falls to the ground on the passenger side where he would have been getting out. And she shoots him like four or five times, various parts of the body, I believe. And then he's laying there dying in the ditch next to the road, begging for his life and says, Baby, we can work this out. And she thought for a second that maybe that could happen, but realized that no, it couldn't. Because she already shot him. And that's when she put one to his head. I have to say, it was chilling to sit there and interview a murderess because most people who are charged with murder don't admit it. You know, they always deny, 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 and then they usually go to trial. I've had 30 murder trials in my life. The vast majority of them go to trial and they always deny, 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 and then you know, they usually get convicted of a higher degree than what's been offered. In almost every case, I've offered a lesser charge, like second degree murder so that they could have a chance to parole someday and not have to put us through a jury trial. And most of them deny it and refuse the offer and go to trial and then get convicted of first-degree murder. In her own defense, Carol tried many times to claim that Lyle had been abusive towards her and that she had to kill him in self-defense. The first time Carol had even mentioned this 
was after she confessed, no one ever bought her story. There had never been a police report filed or even an emergency call to the residence for a domestic incident. She had said that he had been drunk all night long the night before and acting strange and taking Ambien and Xanax, a mix of drugs and bourbon, and he didn't sleep all night long. He was up all night long, and she had to pack his lunch and pack him a whole bunch of coffee to sober him up to get out of work. And she claimed that she had backed his truck out of the driveway for him because he was so drunk. But then he got in the car and drove off to work and she never saw him again. That in itself was kind of a strange story, which was part of the circumstantial evidence against her. I mean, that makes no sense. It's internally inconsistent. If he's all that drunk and high and hadn't slept all night, why would she be you know, making his lunch and sending him off to work? And if she, he was so bad off that she had to back the truck out of the driveway, why would she send him to work? He didn't have very much alcohol in his system, but he did have a small trace of Ambien, I believe. And we had located a vial of crushed up substance that was in the house. And I personally, I think that she was feeding that Ambien to him in his drinks so that he, you know, I don't know, so he wouldn't feel when, when she had plans to kill him. Yeah, he would be, he'd be an easier target. He was high and drunk. Lyle would never harm another soul, and certainly not the woman he had loved since he was a child. Carol is currently serving her prison sentence in Michigan's Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility. She is actively looking for friendship and lists herself as widowed. She provided a full confession of her crimes, as well as admitted to burning down her restaurant back in 1986. She told investigators that she dumped a couple bottles of rubbing alcohol on the floor, lit a match, and tossed it, and then locked the door and left. Carol couldn't be charged with the arson since the statute of limitations had already expired. When Carol was sentenced for the murder of Lyle, she finally showed some emotion and apologized to Lyle's family. Whether she truly felt any remorse, no one will ever know. Lyle's family still lives in the Petoskey area where they grew up. They miss their brother, uncle, and friend more than anything and cannot understand how a woman he loved so much his whole life could have so cold-heartedly stolen him without a second thought. Then interestingly, she also told us of John Ernst's involvement which consisted of talking about it with him ahead of time and on the day in question, which after it was done, which we had their phone records, so we knew that they had spoken on the day of the murder. And then she, uh, most chilling again, was the fact that he was with her when she disposed of the murder weapon. What happened was they drove over the Mackinac Bridge together. We're only 30 miles from the bridge. 
they went up north to the uh, the bridge uh, between the lower and the upper peninsulas, and they drove across the Mackinac Bridge and threw the gun overboard. John was subsequently charged with many counts of perjury, and in Michigan, perjury on a life offense is also a life offense. And John Ernst was, I uh, believe, honorably discharged from the Marines years before and had no prior criminal record, but he wound up going to prison for somewhere around two years because he pled guilty on his perjury charges, and he had just been trying to cover up for her. So the investigative subpoena interview of him turned out to be valuable in the end, and both of them got um, justice and what they deserved. thing I can say for certain is that it wasn't me or one individual that took this case to an end. It was the team and the, the team in this was amazing and uh, it, it would never have come to where it was without the help of the entire team and putting everybody in the right spots. And so yeah, the deputies, the you know, lieutenant at, at the time, Kaiser, I mean, it was, it really was a combination of hard work amongst the whole team. Lyle loved Carol with his whole heart, making this cold, brutal murder so much more difficult to understand. Unfortunately, a mind filled with madness is rarely something many of us can make sense of, especially when it results in the loss of human life. Carol will be approximately 78 years old when she is first eligible for parole. Our hearts go out to the Kopenkowski family and all those affected by the loss of a dear man. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Carol, Jen N, Lexi G, Sarah B, Raina, Paula W, Kara J, and Rachel R. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts already gone. I'm Nina Instad, host of Already Gone, a true crime podcast focused on Detroit, Michigan, and the Great Lakes region. We look at older or lesser-known cases, stories that you won't hear anywhere else. In the weeks ahead, we're covering unsolved murders, missing persons cases, and looking back at a few resolved cases that made the headlines. Listen to Already Gone on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher.
and trace evidence. Hey, podcast listener. This is Stephen, the host of Trace Evidence, a weekly true crime podcast focused on unsolved murders and missing persons. Each week, I dig deep into the evidence, suspects, and theories revolving around the unsolved cases you think you know, Elisa Lamb, Asia Degree, Brandon Lawson, and the ones you've never heard, Lily Aramburo, Candace Hilt, Kanika Powell. If you're a true crime fan haunted by unanswered questions, join me each Monday for a thorough examination of the victims, their stories, and the unknown perpetrators behind them. Trace Evidence is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and all your favorite podcatchers. Visit trace-evidence.com for a full list of episodes, transcripts, and to subscribe today. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in Cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in Cause I'm not prepared to run